0: Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation.
1: Now, here's your host,
0: author Susie Pepper Rollins.
1: Welcome. So glad you're joining us today. The generation we're teaching now does not know of a world without instant information and social media. It seems like they're always attached to their headsets, their smartphones, A lot of discussion around about the impact of the habits of our always-on generation. Today, we're going to tackle one area of that, communication skills. They certainly are communicating a lot with each other via social media, and perhaps there are some positive elements in that. We also know that if they want to know the year the Spanish Armada was defeated or how to solve a math problem, that is just one click away for them on their phones. That certainly brings challenges into the classroom. Our guest today, Angela Stockman, is going to help us navigate some of those waters. Three things to know about author expert Angela Stockman. Number one, she's been an educator for 20 years, 10 of those in middle school. She's even won a couple of teaching awards that I know about because she's just that awesome. She's also taught at the university level. She's written a few books. Her new one is called Hacking the Writing Workshop. What I really love about Angela's approach is uh, how she works with kids who are reluctant to pick up their pencils and get writing. Angela, you had me at Resistant Learner. I'd like uh, for you to first tell us a little bit about how you got into education, when you wake up in the morning, what you're most passionate about.
0: Uh, well, thanks for having me on today, Susie. Um I became a teacher because I had great teachers. I was not um, the most spectacular high school student. In fact, I was kind of a hot mess. And there were teachers who believed in me, even though I gave them absolutely no reason um, to do that when I was in high school. And they encouraged me to pursue things that I loved, and I loved to write. So I became um an education major, largely because of them. And they were the models that I had in my head as I was getting my teaching certification. And when I entered the classroom, I was pretty sensitive and empathetic toward the kids who were like me um, when I was in high school, for better or for worse. So I'm really passionate about trying to see kids. And when I was a young teacher, I was so overwhelmed by trying to please um, particularly other people in my department or on my grade level or administrators and and trying to look like I had it all together that I wasn't really into making mistakes. And so experimenting was not necessarily uh, what I was into when I was younger. And then as I got older, it, it was really sort of this this realization that if I was going to get through to the kids that were struggling the most, either with content or with skills or just with motivation, I really needed to see them. And so that's what motivates me. And that's what I'm passionate about every day, whether I'm working with teachers um, or whether I'm working with students and I work with kids about 50% of the time, um, I get up every morning excited about how I'm documenting what I'm going to learn about those people that day and excited for them to show me who they are um, so that I can be of service to them in
1: some way. And it's kind of changed everything. So when you talk about documenting that, what are you talk what does that look like when you're in, in, in schools?
0: It looks like I got a new Google Pixel because there's no cap on my storage for photos. Um, right. <laughs> the- the notion of taking tons of pictures. I document a lot by taking photographs. I use apps that help me record video and take samples of student work. I interview people a lot and ask them about their thinking and their process and how they're feeling about things and why they made the decisions that they're making. A lot of times I'm asking kids and adults what their real vision is for who they want to be or what they want to accomplish and how what they're doing is in alignment with that or not. Um, and I'm reflecting a lot on the artifacts that I'm able to capture using awesome technology tools that we have now. And you know, you're making me think of something really important. I didn't have access to that stuff when I was a young teacher. Um, and it really has changed a lot for me in terms of being able to reflect
1: you know, I do the same thing when I'm in buildings. I'm loving hearing this as I take a ton of pictures of student work, and then I've I turned that around and put that in a presentation before I leave, like a mini presentation. I love that because um, I like to see my work, and kids like to see their work. Teachers like to see. I love that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about social media. It's 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 obviously in the news so much um, about what impact it's having. Obviously, our students are communicating a lot with each other. We hear and so, but we hear some of the negative things. Are there some positive things that are coming out that you're seeing in classes from all their all this time they're spending on social media?
0: The time that they spend on social media has the potential, I think, to grow their knowledge about certain things. If anything, I think right now um, we're in a place where I, I think teachers and kids and parents are really trying to bridge that divide and they're trying to, to learn about the influence of social media on learning inside of schools. I I think that it's definitely challenging us to reconsider what learning really is. And for teachers who never really appreciated the social aspect of learning, even before technology, I think this is creating a lot more discomfort. But for those who really appreciated how learning is really a social construct, they're leveraging it in ways... Um, that's extending the amount of learning time that's happening, and it's creating um, new corridors for kids to walk down and and actually learn within that don't disappear at the end of the day. So for example, teachers are starting conversations with their students inside of social networks, and there is a stream that we can go back to. There's a record. It's documented. Um, It doesn't disappear. Kids are sharing their writing on social networks. Wattpad is huge for kids who love to write. And they have an immediate audience that gives them feedback on their learning and work. Um, I know that a lot of teachers are using different Google tools in a variety of ways and Chrome extensions um, to increase the amount of feedback and the amount of connectivity that kids have around their work. So this is, this is an exciting shift for people who really appreciate the social nature of learning and who are not daunted by it. But I think it's it, it creates even more discomfort for people who... Who didn't come from that place to begin with?
1: What could we do from in that situation? You're talking about the discomfort in that. Uh, do you have any any sort of steps or first steps for someone who's feeling that? Or what what could what could you what could, what would you say? What do you say to them when you're in buildings? I
0: think sometimes um, it's important to really reflect on and get people to share out the root of that discomfort. Some people are uncomfortable because they're afraid of what might happen if they open a social network inside of their classroom and how kids will engage there. And when I ask them what might happen and we kind of walk through all of the potential things that could result um, that are negative, it can be really helpful to identify, okay, well, if a student does X, how are you going to respond to it and whose support and are you going to need? Um, to have a plan and to be proactive and anticipate what could go wrong usually lowers people's levels of concern and conversations with leadership and district about what they're comfortable about with, how they're going to support the teachers and the students in using these networks and what they intend to do. Um, if something happens that, you know, is less than ideal, and I will say that <sighs> less than ideal things are happening with social media inside of most, if not all, schools right now, um, it would be nice to add an element of learning on top of it. Um, and so I, I don't think that whether we open these social networks to kids for learning or not, um, I don't necessarily think that they're staying off of them in a way that that releases the school from being tangled up in it. Schools are grappling with this every single day, and I kind of shake down um, with those people who feel that we need to create more light um, and that the more light we have and the more learning we have with social media, the less... Uh, The effect is from the darkness of it. And so for me, it's about making sure that people anticipate, think through what could go wrong and know what they're going to do and who is going to support them and how, if that happens, that lowers a lot of levels of concern. The other piece is letting kids lead. Um, And so paying attention, just giving kids permission, you know, to to use the tools that they're comfortable using, um, asking kids permission to join their spaces. um, Those are important first steps, I think, that make the transition a little bit more comfortable for people.
1: That is uh, really insightful. I'm loving all of that. Now, one of the things, and I've been reading about this, is... Of course social media there's a big feedback element to that you get likes you get instant comments you get people liking your new profile page it's it's just it's just right there for you that quick feedback when we're writers I know when I'm writing, you know, I'll write for a long time. I think, I think this is sounding pretty good, but I have no idea because I don't have anyone giving me feedback for large chunks of time when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I know that you have a method that you teach um, that gets students to give peer feedback. Could you share a little bit about your protocols for feedback? Oh, sure. Um, I was actually
0: very fortunate to be a member of Communities for Learning Leading Lasting Change, which is a professional learning community that was facilitated by Dr. Giselle Martin-Kniep, um, Dr. Diane Cunningham, and Joanne Poconzokia. And in that community, I was um, coached in the peer review process. Peer review... Um, supports the use of warm and cool feedback rather than compliments or criticism. And what happens is people share a dilemma or a piece of their work that they would like to receive feedback on. And reviewers have time to actually plan what they want to say a few minutes um, to actually think through warm feedback, which speaks using specific criteria, specific language to how the writer is achieving um, his or her goals. And then cool feedback which um, is usually framed in as much as possible in the form of questions that can prompt the writer to think differently or deeper about their writing in order to achieve their goals. Once those two types of feedback are planned, the group moves in rounds and they share warm feedback, one item at a time first, and then cool feedback one item at a time first. It's a silent review and that's a very purposeful um, decision. Uh the writer under review is not allowed to speak during peer review. There is no need to justify, explain or defend their work because the understanding is that the review is a service that, you know, reviewers are providing to the writer. It is not a set of dictates that the writer has to follow. And so you can disregard people's feedback if it isn't useful to you. Um, and so this process, this removing of compliments and criticism protects space for really productive and I think um, compassionate conversation to happen around writing. And it's something I value very much. I've taught a lot of kids how to use that process as well.
1: And before I forget, uh, you guys who are listening, uh, Angela has those protocols on MyAdExpert, expert and she has a fabulous portfolio. They're all open downloads. You seriously need to go grab them. I have all of them. And when I'm out training, I mention it over and over. You've got to get Angela's stuff. So if you go to my expert, just type in Angela Stockman and you've got a wealth of things right there. One thing that I love about your work, um, and that really connects with me is your approach to resistant writers. And, um, and I read a little bit where you, you had to, you had a group particularly where you almost just wanted to throw in the towel. Um, and, and rather you stepped back and looked at maybe there are some things you could, you know, do a little bit differently in your teaching. Would you take us through that a little bit and tell us a, a bit of a story about how you changed as a teacher when you faced that? Sure.
0: Um, so I taught writing in the classroom for well over a decade. Um, and then I was asked, I was invited to leave the classroom. I became a staff development specialist. And then for some time, um, I was really eager to start a writing community for, for kids outside of the school system. So I did that in 2008 and, um, we brought teachers together and kids together to write. And during that first week, one of my friends, um, brought her son who did not like writing and he was five at the time and it broke my heart every day to have him there withering in his seat and it's different points. I think feeling lonely and wanting, you know, to be doing something else with his time because he was not enjoying writing uh, using the traditional workshop approach that I had been trained in. And so it was kind of like this moment of utter defeat where I slid into the seat next to him and kind of like, put my head in my hands and said, you know, Luke, what would you rather be doing right now? I'm going to let you do it because I'm I'm not really sure um, how to help you. I'm just going to be honest. I I don't know what to do, you know, to help you here. And I don't want you to be sad at writer's studio. I, I want you to have a good day. And I said, if you could do anything other than writing right now, what would it be? Because I'm going to let you do it tomorrow. And he said, I would rather be playing with my Legos. And so I said, well, then what we need to figure out is how you can use your Legos at writer studio to help you become a better writer. And later that night, his mom texted me a picture where Luke had built um, something out of Legos and she worked with him. She used a Sharpie marker and together, They put words on the build, one brick at a time, that told a story about what Luke built. So his story was built out of Legos, but then he could deconstruct it. He could rip it apart, and the words were all loose parts, again, that didn't connect to one another. He spent the entire summer... You know, building up his stash of Legos by going uh, to to different garage sales and having Mom you know add more words to them and then eventually he started adding words and I started adding words and every teacher in our room started adding words. And it really it was the beginning of me discovering the connection between making and writing, particularly for kids who claim to dislike it. But in that moment, that wasn't the big discovery. In that moment, the discovery was. I need to be asking kids what they love to do and I need to stop being so arrogant and imposing these assignments or structures on them. And so I, I need to not assume what kids are passionate about. We do it all the time. Um, I could have last year very easily, if I was still in the classroom, had kids writing about fidget spinners because they were all the rage. And I can just see myself walking into the teacher's lounge, feeling like a hot shot and saying, oh, my gosh, I have this great assignment for fidget spinners. They're going to love it. What makes me think I'm going to love it unless I'm really talking with them about it? So, you know, Luke kind of taught me that I need to include kids in the curriculum design process and it's not hard. And so that that was a really big shift for me that that changed my practice entirely. And then the more I started doing that, the more kids were telling me about activities that really looked like making. Only there was no language for that back then. Um I launched my writer studio I think the same year or shortly before the first Maker Fair um, was launched in San Francisco and so that didn't trickle down into education for some time and it wasn't until I was actually um, looking at all of the data from my action research study that I was doing um, that I started noticing connections like and I said to my husband, the stuff that's coming up in my research it's what everyone's talking about with with this maker movement thing that's, that's catching so much attention right now. And it was fascinating to me um, to be able to connect with other like-minded people who understand that making is not about the stuff that, that it really is. It's a mindset um, and it's a culture. It is not about the thing that kids are creating. And the less we're using pre-cuts I find in my writer's workshop, um, the better it's about loose parts and breaking writing into loose parts and encouraging mixing and remixing, and trying to get better one little bit at a time instead of draft by draft. All of those things have been kind of transformational.
1: And if you were going to give any teacher sort of three ideas across content, I mean, you are such a wonderful uh, resource for writing. Are there, are there two or three things that you could tell every teacher tomorrow in your classroom, try this? And I, I've made some notes here, but I'd like to hear from you. What, what would you say to them?
0: Well, my first would probably be something that, you know, that I just kind of reflected on a minute ago. Don't assume that what we um, interpret of kids' lives is actually their truth. You know, we can't assume that we know what's going to interest or engage kids based on current trends or the assumptions we're making about their experiences. We really need to be asking them and we need to be asking all of them instead of just the kids who raise their hands or just the kids who are comfortable reaching out to us. We need to find a way to, to tap into all of their you know, perceptions and, and to get information from all of them. Um, and then documenting learning rather than simply testing for knowledge acquisition. It is really incredibly important as well. And the solutions that are found when we do that are typically different than the ones that come up when we're looking at a test and they help the kids do better on the test. Uh, and then reflection, all of it is, everything is driven by reflection. The best work that we do I think, in the field comes from reflective practice. Th- those
1: would be my three. And this is kind of a, a, a big, big question that I've, I've been thinking of lately is um, how much screen time should they have? I mean, I'm thinking when I first started teaching, there was there's always been a big priority to integrate technology, to use technology um, And then I wonder sometimes, is there a time for me to say, hey, this is modeling clay. You know, we're going to use your hands on this. Is there a balance that you look for so we we, we don't swing too far one way and do some things that are more hands-on that are not technology related? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, you know, I have thoughts and I have all sorts of wonderful opinions, but I also have a kid who I get into daily battles with at home over her use of technology because it's constant. Um, and so, you know, as a parent, especially of of a 17 year old, I know that we need to be striving for better balance and I'm probably, you know, as well-intentioned as they come, um, and trying to navigate all of that, but it's a very, it's a very tough battle to fight. Um, and so I would, I only know that in order for kids to, have rich and rewarding social experiences online and to use technology in rich and rewarding ways, they need to be living a big life offline as well. Nature still matters and their face-to-face relationships matter and they need to have robust lives off the web in order to do great work on the web. Um, and in order to, you know, be of any significance on social media as well. Um, And so I think it's really important that that comes first. And so in terms of hours or minutes, you know, I'm not your girl there. And there's probably far better research on that. Um, And it would be irresponsible for me to like go in that direction probably because I'm not anywhere near the expert on that particular, you know, set of data. But um, as a parent and a mom and a teacher and a writer um, and somebody who really loves people, there is something that, that troubles me a little bit about the fact that so much of what's happening in kids' lives is online, and I think it's something that we need to be really sensitive to and that we need to continue to fight the good fight around,
1: um, and, and it'll make their lives online richer. Well, that's sage advice, and I have so enjoyed visiting with you today and having this conversation. I'm going to kind of wrap up a little some of my notes that I'm going to continue thinking about here that I've... I've gotten from our conversation. One is really looking at social media as a learning tool and some of the benefits and to embrace some of that. And I love what you said about, you know, what are our fears about it? Let's just kind of get that on the table. You know, what are we, how would we respond to those? I'm definitely going to take away. I don't want to make assumptions about what my kids are interested. Ask them, find out what interests them to document learning with photos and and other, another ways, um, Trying to, and, oh, and then all of, and I love all of your ideas about how to get feedback into our writing and the process. There, I want to mention again that Angela has some fantastic just some fantastic things. And Angela, we're so appreciative that you've posted those at My at, at, My at Expert. Don't again, you if you have- just go, on, oh, i love it. And so, if everybody, if you just go on Myed Expert now, tell us how. What's your Twitter? How would you like people to reach you? Oh, I'm Angela Stockman on Twitter. Okay. So at Angela Stockman there. And again, if you go to my expert, just type in Angela Stockman and you'll see a lot of her fabulous work. She has a new book coming out and educators to all of you. Thank you so, so much for all that you do. You are the ones out there opening doors for all of our kids. You're the one who makes everything possible for our students. Thanks so much for joining us and we will see you next time.
0: We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.